This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Don't get me wrong. It's weird to to see the show in front of no one, but (laughs) I want, yeah, you know what I mean? It's, It's strange because we sell the atmosphere. Like wrestling, so much of the behind the scenes that wrestling fans want to know is like they're very interested in economics. Wrestling fans study economics and ratings far more. Like that's the, those are the metrics in our sport. Those are the batting average and the touchdowns in our sport. Is this a good business? Yeah, it's a good business. I wouldn't be in it if it wasn't. Why is it a good? Thing? Because only the tough survive. That's the reason you ain't in it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. Broadcasting from the WrestleNomics studio. Broadcasting from the closet in the WrestleNomics studio. It's all a part of our initiative here at WrestleNomics to enhance the audio quality and deliver the very best sound to you. You hear some of them hammering in the background? Well, that's just the landlord's maintenance crew. But anyway, we've been recording up to this point, right in front of a furnace. That's right, a furnace. No more. While some wrestling podcasts choose to record from their parents' basement, I'm recording from my very own walk-in closet. Well, I I don't own it. I'm I'm leasing it, I guess. Well, if you believe in private property, anyway. But anyway, today is May the 8th, 2020. It's Friday, and it's been another absurd week in an absurd business at an absurd time in wrestling history. Did I mention it's May 8th and it's snowing in Buffalo, New York in May? That's right. That's why the property values are so low. The cost of living is so low here in Buffalo, New York. So at these troubled times, if you're looking for a new destination, a new home, the low cost of living, well, you might want to consider the Queen City. The home of the Bills. The home of Rick James. The home of Lex Luger. The assassination site of President William McKinley. Buffalo, New York is basically a third world country right here in the United States of America. But what are we going to talk about today? We've got a number of things I might get into. I never really know where exactly I'm going to go with this show. I have a big estimate for 2020 for WWE after looking at things more closely and after considering what the cost is of running Raw and SmackDown at the Performance Center. We have a story about Mr. Good and Mr. Smith when they go to Maryland. More on that later. But first, yeah, upon further investigation, they are gutting out the basement of the vacant house that I live next to. And that that is the world that I'm broadcasting from here today. But anyway, but first. In New Japan Pro Wrestling News, the best of the Super Junior 27, which was going to start on May 12th, running through June the 6th, has formally been canceled. In addition to that, here in the United States, the Wrestle Dynasty event that was supposed to happen in New York City at Madison Square Garden has officially been postponed to a date to be announced in 2021. In New Japan's official announcement that the Best of the Super Junior Tour was canceled, New Japan writes that they are continuing to explore the possibility of presenting matches without fans in attendance if staff and wrestler health and safety 
can be protected to the highest possible standard. So it sounds like with WWE and AEW running events without fans, now, now probably the second or third biggest wrestling company in the world, New Japan Pro Wrestling, is considering running some shows without fans. All Elite Wrestling resumed live taping this past Wednesday in Jacksonville at Daly's Place. AEW announced beforehand that all wrestlers and staff had been tested and tested negative for COVID-19. Sometime before the live broadcast, AEW President and CEO Tony Khan appeared on the AEW podcast, Unrestricted, affirming the notion that it's important for AEW to produce TV as television is their main source of revenue. So we're so blessed we signed a long extension with our, our partners at TNT. Going yes, we Thanks, TNT. Uh, this, that, that's why we, we, we've talked a lot about what it took to put the show on. But let's be honest, like why we're doing, I mean, that for AEW, that, that like our partnership with TNT, putting on great shows is what, what is our revenue stream right now. Later in the appearance, Khan seemed to be referring to the recent WWE releases of talent, cutting of costs, and furloughing of employees. When he said that there may come a time in the future where AEW decides to cut costs or cut talent, but it would not be right now. Between Revolution and Double or Nothing, you know, this was going to be the best run of business we've ever had. And we've lost millions and millions and millions of dollars in live events. And I don't take it lightly, but I can't take it out on the people that work here because it's not their fault. Right. And, mm-hmm. like, we've really never let anybody go here as a company. And, like, look, like, I'm going to be honest. Like, there's going to come a day when someday we're going to have to. But now is not. Now, yeah, all businesses have eventually you're going to, but, but now is not the time. Right. And it's, it, this is a hard time for everybody. It's a hard time for us, you know, but it, we have to, I, I have to look at the bigger picture. And in the big picture, we're in such good shape. Uh, and we're the second healthiest wrestling company in the world. And that's a pretty great place to be. Right. And we haven't let a single person go to do it. And I love to have those millions of dollars in the gates back, but they're not coming back. And uh, eventually we'll do shows in these cities and we'll do great. But these weeks are gone and it, that, I have to face that. Speaking of TV revenue, maybe, the TV network A&E and the wrestling company, WWE, are partnering on a show that might be called The Quest for Lost WWE Treasures. No, that's not a TV show about WWE's diminished popularity, but it's a TV show about WWE's wrestling memorabilia. Ten one-hour episodes hosted by Stephanie McMahon and Triple H Paul Levesque. This is according to Media News website Deadline. The series will be produced by WWE Studios. No word in the report on when that will start airing. And I guess we'll watch future WWE earnings reports to get an idea of whether or not WWE's making any significant money as a result of this. I'm sure they're making something from it. For some frame of reference, I think that WWE's reality TV series uh, provide WWE with revenue of somewhere between a half a million and $1 million per episode for things like Total Divas, Total Bellas, Ms. and Mrs. Meanwhile, arguably, WWE's top full-time star, Roman Reigns, hasn't been appearing on WTV since before WrestleMania. Purportedly, that was due to his history of health problems with leukemia and the idea that he would have a compromised immune system and that he didn't want to take the risk of wrestling at a time when there's such a risk of contracting COVID-19. But in an interview released today on Friday, Reigns told TMZ that his absence is more due to concerns with his family. I'm doing good. Yeah. And a lot of people, um, you know, they think that it was based off of my health and my, my you know, the history of my uh, fight against leukemia. Um, but, you know, just talking to my doctors and stuff, I, I actually, you know, am 
am fine and my immune system is good. The drugs that I take in order to fight the leukemia, they don't attack your immune system. But I, you know, not everybody knew because I try to keep it private in this crazy world. But, uh, you know, my, my children, you know, I, I, we just had two uh, newborn twins, twin boys. Um, they're eight weeks old. Um, so I, I had to make a decision for them. And I love this business. I mean, if anybody ever questions if I love this business, go back a, about a year and a half ago. I came back as fast as possible. Yeah. I could have took a lot longer off to, to focus on my health. But they told me, yeah, man, you, you should be fine to get in the ring and do your thing if you want to get back to normal. And I jumped as soon as they, they gave me the green light. So, but I, this is bigger than me. It's, it's my family. It's my children. They are my legacy. No matter what I do in this world, my children are going to be the ones that represent my name and, and carry our name forward. So I had to make that choice for them um, to protect them being so young. But we're doing good. You know, it's, it's tough because I want to be out there. I want to. You know. In other news this week, there were more WWE stock sales. <laughs> First, on Monday, WWE Executive Vice President Paul Triple H Levesque, it was disclosed through SEC filings that he sold 23,255 of his WWE shares, sold at an average price of $43.80. That means he cashed out just over $1 million in WWE stock. Then, the SEC filing just dropped just now. It was disclosed that on Wednesday, his wife, WWE Chief Brand Officer, Stephanie McMahon, Stephanie McMahon Levesque, sold the exact same number of shares, 23,255. Those she sold at an average share price of $44.29, cashing out just a little bit more than Paul Levesque did. Just over $1 million, in her case, $1,029,964, compared to Paul Levesque's $1,000,000. $18,569. SEC filings, as they are wont to do, do not disclose what the purpose of the stock sales were. Their sales this week follow sales by Brad Blum and Kevin Dunn, two other WWE executives who sold stock last week. Quite a coincidence that Stephanie and Paul Levesque both sold the exact same number of shares. Who knows, that suggests to me that maybe it's personal uh, financial planning has something to do with it, splitting the cost of something maybe, who knows. But it is also worth noting that this is the first time that Triple H, in his history as an executive, has made an actual stock sale. Now he's made a number of what they call in-kind transactions, in which stock units are withheld by WWE to pay for withholding taxes. WWE executives appear to make those transactions every July for the last few years, but this is the first of Paul Levesque's first actual stock sale of shares that he owns. In Triple H's case, he still owns over 144,000 WWE shares, so the sale that he made for just over 23,000 shares only represented about 14% of the number of shares that he held at that time. In Stephanie's case, she was only selling 1% of the total WWE shares that she owns. Stephanie still owns over 2 million WWE shares. The vast majority of her shares are the Class B family stock that give McMahon family members 10 times the amount of voting power per share 
compared to mere Class A shareholders. Stephanie's remaining 2.1 million WB shares represents roughly 3% of the overall WB ownership, although her voting power is somewhat greater than that because of Class B shares. She remains the second largest individual non-institutional owner of WB shares. Of course, number one remains WB CEO and Chairman of the Board, Vince McMahon, who owns roughly 36% of all WB shares, but maintains the vast majority of the voting power thanks to Class B shares. And in other news, longtime listeners of WrestleNomics Radio will remember a former co-host of this program, one Christopher Mukigana Harrington. And if you've been wondering what he's been up to, as have I, well, some news came to light this week via the Maryland State Athletic Commission in the form of a consent order headlined Maryland State Athletic Commission versus All Elite Wrestling LLC. And from that document, I now present to you in paragraph two, the tale of Mr. Good and Mr. Smith go to Maryland. On November 9th, 2019, during a professional wrestling match and an event held at the Royal Farms Arena presented and promoted by the respondent, both Mr. Good and Mr. Smith introduced foreign objects into the ring, including a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire, a broom with bristles wrapped in barbed wire, and a tool similar to an ice pick. Mr. Good used the baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire to strike Mr. Smith three times across his back and caused lacerations, from which Mr. Smith bled. Mr. Smith used the broom with bristles wrapped in barbed wire to strike Mr. Good across the back of his head and his shoulder and caused lacerations, from which Mr. Good bled. Mr. Smith also raked the broom across Mr. Good's back while Mr. Good was lying face down and twice stomped on the broom after placing the broom on Mr. Good's back. The respondent was responsible for the acts of Mr. Smith and Mr. Good. Moving on to paragraph four, based on the aforementioned violations, the respondent agrees to pay a civil penalty to the commission in the amount of $10,000 within 30 days of the date of this consent order. Paragraph five, the respondent is entering into this consent order in the spirit of conciliation and cooperation in effort to avoid litigation. The commission acknowledges that while AEW took precautions to reduce the potential for injury to both Mr. Good and Mr. Smith by using materials in certain circumstances to simulate injury and merely give the appearance of bleeding, blood was introduced into the ring in other instances during this professional wrestling match through the deliberate and repeated actions of the two reference wrestlers as scripted by AEW. This consent order is signed by David J. Norman, chairman of the Maryland State Athletic Commission, and Chris Harrington, authorized representative of All Elite Wrestling LLC, dated April 28th, 2020. And I bet sometimes authorized representative Chris Harrington sometimes wishes that he was still just a wrestling podcast host. For those who don't know, Mr. Good refers to John Moxley, Mr. Smith refers to Kenny Omega. The match referred to is the Lights Out match at the AEW Full Gear pay-per-view in November. Man, Moxley has no 
does not give a damn. And this crowd is loving him. And then from there, uh, earlier this week, I posted a another blog post on WrestleNomics.com, which you can find at WrestleNomics.com, where I updated my analysis of my estimate of W finances for the full year of 2020. So I did this research uh, on March 31st. I put out an earlier estimate uh, where I estimated that the operating income, which is a, a form of profit for WB, would be $121 million for the full year of 2020. That was just a couple of weeks after a lot of COVID-19 restrictions had started. And I went through each revenue line for WB and tried to assess how much each revenue line was at risk related to COVID-19. Clearly live events, off the table. Venue merchandise, off the table. There's going to be decreased demand for advertisement and sponsors on W Media. So again, not TV advertisements. W doesn't get a share of their commercials for Raw and SmackDown, say. But they do get, say, the Snickers, official sponsor of WrestleMania. That's WWE money. With the larger economic pain happening here, there's going to be a decreased demand for advertising. I also see possible downstream risks for areas like e-commerce, WWE's online merchandise selling business, and the WWE Network as a function of possibly wider economic uh, pain happening with people having less money. But I think there's a problem too just in the fact that WWE is doing empty arena shows that aren't as appealing to fans and just an overall lessening of interest, which is also why I think there's some risk there for the e-commerce business. Because when you have TV that people aren't enjoying as much, that people aren't watching it as much, people are less likely to subscribe to your service or keep it, and people are less likely to buy merchandise related to the personalities that they're watching or not watching on TV. Another big piece is a second Saudi Arabia event. WRE did one in February, worth about $50 million in revenue. WWE would be due to do its second. That's the deal is to do two Saudi Arabia events every year. They're due to do another one, sometimes before the end of the year. At the time, the end of March, I was more confident that there would be another Saudi Arabia event somehow or another before the end of the year. I am less confident now, I will say, though. But And then the biggest piece of revenue for WWE, probably going to be, even if this was a normal year, probably about half of the company's revenue from the TV rights fees around the world, but especially in the U.S., related to Raw and SmackDown. And I said on March 31st that I thought that those were not at risk. The contracts are for guaranteed money. They're not based on viewership performance. TV networks like the USA Network and Fox are, if anything, desperate for some form of new sports-like content. Since then, we had a period uh, a couple weeks ago where it looked like Vince McMahon thought that the TV rights fees were somehow in doubt, merely speculation based on Vince McMahon's sudden decision to go from a taped schedule for Ron Smackdown to going live and then suddenly reverting back to some form of a, of a taped schedule again. Who knows what happened? Who knows if Vince was just dissatisfied with the creative and the system that was in place on the day that he decided to do everything live, and then maybe he talked to uh, TV partners, and maybe he received some reassurance. I don't know. But it looks like the TV rights fees uh, are not at risk, or at least there's no reason at this point to think that WWE will get its TV rights fees cut there was some assurance to that effect on the Q1 conference call uh, on April 23rd from Vince McMahon and CFO Frank Riddick. 
But anyway, before we get too far ahead, I estimated at the time $121 million in operating income. So operating income, maybe you want to think of it as like your gross income on your paycheck before the taxes get taken out. And then your net pay is after the taxes are taken out. And that's sort of like what W reports is their net income. But anyway, $121 million in operating income would break, I believe, the all-time company record. We only have operating income going back about 12 years or so to 2006. So what is that? 14 years. I have not found operating income going back any further than that. But even when you adjust for inflation, the highest operating income ever was last year, $116.5 million in operating income. The all-time net income record, which we do have going back all the way to, I believe, 1995, even when you adjust for inflation, the net income record is 2018 with $99.6 million in 2018, higher than even the glory days of 98 and 99. Those come just short of $90 million in net income. But anyway, point is the earlier March 31st estimate of mine of $121 million, that would be a record. I'm revising that now to say it's going to be even higher than that, twice as high as that to an operating income of $280 million for 2020. And that's going under the assumption that there are no live events for the remainder of the year. That's going under the assumption that there is no Saudi Arabia event. So I went from 121 million to 280. How can that be? Did I just open up Microsoft Excel and lose my mind? How can I be more sure that W is gonna make even more money than I thought before. Well, the biggest reason is that now that if under the assumption that WWE would produce Raw and SmackDown through the rest of 2020 at the Performance Center, producing TV in the Performance Center is far cheaper than producing Raw and SmackDown in major arenas. That is the biggest difference. And on a per show basis for Raw and SmackDown TV tapings, Raw and SmackDown become more profitable in a COVID-19 world than in a pre-COVID-19 world. If you've been listening to the last couple episodes, you heard Vince McMahon in his own words say uh, on the conference call for Q1 on April 23rd that it's much cheaper to run TV in this studio kind of setting at the Performance Center versus at an arena. We also know that beginning in Q2, which began April 1st, that WWE is getting its upgrade in TV rights fees from its number two TV market, India, thanks to the new deal it made with Sony for TV for Raw and SmackDown in India. That deal, I believe, is also an escalating deal where the payments get higher and higher as time goes on. The fee this time is a little bit higher than the fee the time before. So the India deal with Sony is another five-year deal. According to sportsbusiness.com, the value of the deal is $50 million, average annual value per year, so probably quite a bit less than $50 million this year, probably about $50 million in the middle of the deal, and then a little bit more than $50 million towards the end of the deal. And I'm still assuming some expenses in the live event area, even though W won't be running any actual normal live events. I'm still factoring in some expenses related to maybe uh, keeping those, some of those employees involved and keeping some of the infrastructure I'm still factoring in some expense related to venue merchandise as well. I'm factoring in an expected year-over-year decline in W Network subscribers for the rest of the year. Factoring in less advertisement and sponsor media money than would be expected otherwise. 
factoring in year-over-year declines in product licensing and in e-commerce. Factoring in a weaker Q4 in licensing than would be expected otherwise because WB announced on the Q2 call that they will not be doing the WB2K21 video game, uh, the, the normal 2K game that they do each year, won't be happening this year. So I'm factoring in a weaker Q4 than there would be otherwise. So I went into a great deal of detail that I won't, I won't get into all the detail. I'm not going to reread the, the article uh, here. It's a lot of numbers that are probably better to read than to listen to an audio. Again, you can find that right at the top at russellnomics.com. But from this model, we can also do some thought exercises and think about whether the, just how necessary were the April 15th uh, cost cutting and layoffs of employees and of talent and furloughing of employees as well. Uh, financially, in terms of making sure that W is profitable, they were not necessary at all. In fact, as I explained in the article, we can take some extreme exercises and say, imagine if we just wiped out all WWE revenue except for Raw and SmackDown fees and the WWE network. WWE would still be quite profitable. WWE would still break its operating income record for the year. $168 million would be my estimate in that uh, fictional scenario. And then let's go further. Let's even wipe out W Network revenue for the rest of the year. Let's say that on April 1st, every single W subscriber cancels their W Network subscription. We know for a fact that that didn't happen because we know that there were about 1.6 million W Network subscribers on the day after the second day of WrestleMania. But let's imagine somehow that that happens and all W Network subscribers cancel their subscription. The company makes no revenue from the network from Q2 to Q3 through Q4, and that their only source of revenue is the line that's called core content rights fees. That's the revenue related to Raw and SmackDown. And let's imagine that they, they keep the expenses that are related to the W Network because they have to run shows there and keep content there and run the network. Let's imagine that they keep all the expenses that were assumed in, in the more realistic scenarios that I just went through. And the only source of revenue through the last three quarters of the year is from Raw and SmackDown rights fees. W still has an operating income of $44 million. And then again, remember what I said earlier, sort of think about operating income as like your gross income on your paycheck. That's the money that's paid to you before taxes are taken out, before your health insurance is paid for, things like that. And then your net income is your take-home pay. So it really gets deducted out of the operating income for WWE is the interest and other expenses sometimes related to investments that WWE makes. So the interest and other expenses and then the effective tax rate. And I don't consider myself informed enough to make good judgments on what exactly that's going to be. But it seems possible even in this extreme scenario where WWE only has TV rights money for the last three quarters of the year, even in that thought exercise, it seems possible that WWE, I'm not going to make a, an estimate on the number, but it seems possible that WWE could make a positive or break even on net income with a operating income of $44 million. But anyway, these are just sort of thought experiments to sort of illustrate how necessary economically uh, cost cutting was, which was announced on April 15th. So as long as TV networks like 
USA Network, which is owned by NBC Universal and Fox, uh, continue to be financially viable and continue to be able to make the TV payments that they are contractually supposed to make to, to WWE and don't try to get out of them for one reason or another. And again, Vince McMahon gave some reassurance on the April 23rd call to the effect that TV partners were that they had their back and we have theirs. So I don't think there's any good reason to believe, at least yet, that WWE won't be receiving the TV rights fees that they expected to receive at the beginning of this year. More wrestling business analysis after this. Now, more than ever, you're worried about what's going to happen next. You're scared for your well-being, your loved ones, your job. In fact, you're probably having a panic attack just thinking about it right now. Ongoing circumstances have forced everyone to rethink the future. Do you want to live in a world where you don't know off the top of your head the top five all-time pro wrestling attendances? When your children ask you whether the wrestling industry is a live event-driven business or a media business, and you don't know, what are you going to tell them? How will you feel? There's only one way to avoid this disaster. One plan that removes all the uncertainty. You need to enroll today in WrestleNomics University. WrestleNomics University, now offering affordable student loans, your tuition can be paid for today through our exclusive financing program that allows you to make deductions against your future social security benefits. At WrestleNomics University, we help make everything easier right now and help you forget about the future. In these troubled times, now more than ever, enroll in WrestleNomics University. So TV viewership over this time for W programming for AW has not been good. We've got double digits of percent of decline uh, by most by most angles of, of measurement that you want to give here as far as the pre and post COVID-19 effects on, on, on TV viewership. So there's a number of ways to look at this, but let's look at it in kind of the simplest way. Let's just take the year of 2020 before the restrictions went into effect. So I'm going to say the restrictions started on March 13th. That is the day of the first empty building show, which was SmackDown on March 13th. So I'm going to take March 13th to the present, compare that against January 1st to March 12th. Total audience for Raw down 14%, for SmackDown down 9%, for NXT down 10%, for Dynamite down 16%. For the key demo, the 18 to 49 group, Raw down 19%, SmackDown down 15%, NXT down 20%, Dynamite down 16%. Now you may be asking yourself, is that just normal though for this time of year? What happened last year? Maybe it's just normal that a lot of the audience tunes out over this this period. That's what a lot of it is following WrestleMania. Last year, in the same comparison of dates, there was no NXT or Raw on major cable, but Raw was down in total audience, 4%, single digit. SmackDown was up 1% in total audience. Raw was down 5% in the 18 to 49. SmackDown had a 0% decline or growth. 
and I know I kind of said this last week, but uh, we'll go into why I think this is a concerning thing for the wrestling business here. Why I'm worried about whether or not anybody is going to tune back in whenever uh, things go back to normal. I think it's going to be a long time before things go back to normal. And I, I did even read a blog that uh, Meltzer's and others were, were tweeting, and I shared it on the Russell Namas account from a blog written by an epidemiologist who went, it's a very long blog, and you can find it uh, linked on the, on the Russell Namas Twitter account, talking about how long it's going to be before sports, you know, sports events can be attended by tens of thousands of people. And it's probably not going to be, in his opinion, until maybe the middle, maybe late 2021, probably not until there is a vaccine that is mass administered. So it's just the longer this goes on, the more I think, you know, we're really going to be looking back on this time in wrestling history and, and talking about how much it changed the course of the trajectory of a lot of things in wrestling. But anyway, I want to talk a little bit more in detail about things like breakpoints and talk about what, what friction means, at least in my brain. Because I think the, the coronavirus phenomenon is, is presenting a lot of friction and, and, and some breakpoints, or at least it's presenting a breakpoint for people. So it's kind of a growing suspicion of mine that breakpoints and friction are underappreciated phenomena in wrestling economics. So first, let's just define what the hell it is that I'm talking about. And in some ways, maybe they're even similar or the same thing. So friction, I think, is anything that stands in the way of the consumer. This sounds really capitalistic. It's anything that stands in the way of the consumer consuming the product. It's any amount of time, money, energy, effort, uh, knowledge, savvy, often tech savvy, that it requires to consume the product, to get to the product. It's, it's anything that's asked of or required of the consumer. And I think in this case, in, the, in these days, it's sort of required of the consumer or the viewer to, to continue to be sort of loyal to WWE or to continue to be a follower or a fan of of W or AEW, that they have to sit through these empty building shows, which tend to be the viewership bears out at least that these shows are not as enjoyable or as good or as interesting as the normal sports arena shows. So to sort of continue to be invested or engaged in the product, I have to, I have to exert some energy or I have to not be somebody who's bothered as much by this empty arena deal. So that's a friction. And I think the, the emergence of new friction, like these, this new emergence of empty building shows, it presents a breakpoint. And I think a breakpoint, I think of as any time where it's convenient or I, I could just, you know, happen to change my routine in life or you're asking me to consume the product in a different way, or I have to go a different route to get to the product. Or in this case, you're asking the consumer to, to allow the product to be different than it was before. And this may be a convenient break point, a point at which the consumer or the viewer or the fan may say, well, I'll come back after 
after coronavirus is over. And they may sincerely believe that, and they may or may not actually come back or actually may or may not actually return to being as engaged as they were before. In addition to that, as I'm sure everybody listening knows, coronavirus is causing all sorts of differences in the ways that we live our life. Particularly what I mean is it's causing all sorts of differences in our daily routines. It may be causing differences in people's daily schedules and people's daily habits that may affect whether or not the consumer is going to continue to watch the same TV show that they always watch. But maybe people will come back. And I think what's going to factor greatly into whether or not people come back is the degree to which the consumer is emotionally invested in the product. And a major part of the reason why I'm kind of pessimistic, especially in WWE's case, is because I feel that, and I think there's a great deal of evidence to support this, gradually, particularly over the last three years or so, fans have been gradually disengaging with WWE at a consistent rate. So the degree to which people are emotionally invested in WWE programming, I think for at least a lot of people, is fairly low and not sufficient to get a lot of them to come back whenever Raw and SmackDown and NXT and maybe more so Raw and SmackDown, go back to sports arenas. This viewership continues to fall at a pretty rapid rate. Maybe it'll level off at, at some point. But Raw just did the lowest total audience that it's ever done. Certainly since 2014, but probably in the entire history of the program since 1993. I have some data for the, the pre Monday Night War era. We've got some ep instances of episodes of Raw that were viewed in around 1.6 or a little bit fewer than 1.6 million homes. But considering there's at least some people who are not watching Raw alone, it's very likely that there was a an audience that was higher than the audience that was watching this past Monday night. Anyway, the point is the Raw viewership last Monday was very low, probably the lowest ever, and we don't know where the bottom is. And I have no data-based sense of how to predict where the bottom is. So something to watch as the weeks go on. And now let's talk about whether wrestling is real or fake. I ask Schultz questions that I assume all wrestlers have been asked dozens of times. What? Is this a good business? Yeah, it's a good business. I wouldn't be in it if it wasn't. Why is it a good business? Because only the tough survive. That's the reason you ain't in it. And this punk holding the camera reading he ain't in it. Reading these rednecks out here ain't in it because it's a tough business. That's terrific. What? Is that all you got? I'll ask you the standard question. You know? Standard question. I think this is fake. You think it's fake? So that, of course, is Dr. D. Dave Schultz slapping John Stossel in 1985 in the infamous 2020 segment on professional wrestling that was revisited this week because it was the subject of uh, the latest Dark Side of the Ring on Vice. And don't worry, I'm not going to review the latest episode of Dark Side of the Ring 
I'm, I'm sure you have at least one other podcast in, in your app that has already done so. In fact, I haven't even seen the, the episode. But I want to think about what real and fake mean or have meant to wrestling economics. Because I think it's kind of a thing that's not talked about enough, at least among the people who I listen to. I, th- I think because I tend to listen to, at least I'm talking about podcasts and writing and things like that. I tend to listen to people who are, who have been following wrestling for a very long time and have been following the inside of the business for a long time. But anyway, they tend to, to be of the opinion that, well, everybody always knew it was fake. They're not surprising anyone. And in a sense, I think that's true. But in an important sense, I think there's, there's a, I don't know, I think there's some important details missing from the usual conversation that I hear anyway. But anyway, from, at least let's start with personal experience. Um, I'm old enough to remember a world before the internet, or at least before the internet was in, in anybody's home. And, and why, why is the internet an important part of this thought? Because you can't look up on the internet uh, whether or not wrestling is fake in 1991 or 1990 or so, when my, when my earliest wrestling memories are from. And I guess I am one of those kids who at one point thought wrestling was a shoot, at least when I was five years old. And then I think my uncle or something told me that, uh, you know, that, that that's all fake. And then I later confirmed this with my dad. But I often hear it said that people knew that wrestling was fake going back to the 30s. And I've read Luthez's uh, autobiography where he talks about going to wrestling matches with his dad in what must have been the 20s or something. And he, he says in, in his autobiography, Hooker, that he didn't feel like he was being swindled out of his money, but also didn't feel like what he was watching was a shoot. So anyway, what I think is underappreciated or under-talked about is that there was at one point a mystery, and there is less of a mystery now, and that that has some sort of economic bearing. And I think the, the people who are insiders of wrestling who are probably being accused of exposing the business, I, th- I think they, they tend to want to tell people that everybody always knew it was a work to, I, I guess, dismiss the criticism that, that they were doing anything that was harmful to the wrestling business. You know, the Dave Meltzers of the world probably wanted to, you know, be able to tell people that he's not telling any, anybody anything that they don't know. He's not revealing to the world that pro wrestling is a work. Everybody already knows that pro wrestling is a work. Well, I, th- I think further back in time, people were unsure of what was going on. And probably the vast majority of the audience believed that it wasn't a 100% shoot, but maybe they thought that sometimes it got real. Maybe in certain situations, it was real. Maybe that match that I remember as special was real. Or that guy, he was real. Maybe, you know, maybe everybody else was fake, but, uh, but Bruiser Brody, he was real. Or maybe they didn't even mean that literally. Come to think of it, you could, I think you could really make a, uh, a, a scholarly article in the uh, field of epistemology on the subject of whether or not wrestling audiences know or, or knew at some point in the past whether or not pro wrestling 
is predetermined. But anyway, I, I think there is a, an economic consequence to this that at, at one point there was a mystery and a mystique about wrestling. And then there still can be a mystique about pro wrestling, but there was a mystery about whether or not it was real or whether or not certain situations were real or certain wrestlers were real. And not just that binary question, but there was the mystery about whether or, or rather how it wasn't real or how it was put together, how it was predetermined. How do they decide who wins or loses? It's kind of, it's one of the questions that I often get asked by like friends or family members when they find out I'm a wrestler. Well, how do they decide who's going to win and lose? So maybe in the, in the 80s or the 70s or further back than that, people believed that something was up, but they didn't know what was going on and how it was predetermined. That maybe was part of the intrigue for some people was to watch it to see if they could figure it out or just to watch it with the intrigue of not knowing. And now we're at the point today, and I'm, I'm trying to refrain from making a value judgment, but we're at the point today where anyone with an internet connection and the least bit curiosity can find an infinite supply of, of media, uh, interviews, written content, explaining how wrestling works in various situations, uh, you know, behind the scenes stories. You can find all sorts of videos and material online showing how wrestlers are trained to do wrestling matches that don't kill each other. So there's an endless supply of information that is only limited by your, your attention span and patience and, and uh, appetite to discover it that will inform you about how wrestling works and what happened behind the scenes in such and such situation. So I, I guess I think in that environment of the past where less was known about pro wrestling, where people probably believed that it wasn't real, but, but less was known about how it wasn't a shoot. I think wrestling was an easier product to sell as a ticket. And, and I often talk about and think about how wrestling is overlapping a space between live sports and scripted entertainment. And I think it was an easier ticket to sell because it was more perceived as or at least wondered about as a live sport. And there seems to be or seemed to be certainly more so than there is today, more of a general interest from the public in buying a wrestling ticket than there is today. Uh, not just, well, imagine we're talking in, in a non-COVID-19 world here. Obviously, no one's buying wrestling tickets today. But let's say 2019. I think it was easier to sell a, a ticket to a wrestling event in 1979 or 1969 than it was in 2019. And obviously, it's a very different business today. Uh, a company like WWE is making more money from TV than it ever made from live events. But, I, but I'm fascinated by this question of what, why was wrestling an easier ticket to sell in prior decades than it is in this current era. Assuming that's true, um, I think it is, and I think there's, there's some reporting out there, probably sort of in the form of newspaper clippings to support that. 
that was an, it was an easier sell to get somebody to go see wrestling just like it was just like it you know you want to go see the baseball game and now it seems uh so much more of a, a niche special interest rather than this thing that seemed in another era again be, well before my time so people can tell me if they they see it differently but in a different era it seemed to be more of a mainstream general form of entertainment and obviously to some extent it still is you still have families and mainstream consumers going to some w events but i think to a far less degree now that's not a value judgment i'm, I'm not saying that people killed the business by exposing it and they killed kayfabe and that's terrible i think it was it's sort of an, an inevitable thing that is a result of the involving media world that we live in the evolution of technology made it unavoidable unless we're going to have like some sort of like totalitarian uh, limits on on the internet or something and that the the job of people in pro wrestling is not to try to suppress that information but to adapt to the conditions that we're in and not to decry that somebody else killed the business and, you know maybe it's maybe it's the people who decry that somebody else killed the business who are no longer with any idea about how to adapt and be relevant in the business. So that's what I have for this week. So if you have thoughts about that, tweet me at WrestleNomics. And in the interest of full disclosure, and if you're interested in supporting WrestleNomics, and if you're interested in signing up to a great wrestling streaming service and getting access to thousands of hours of independent wrestling content, you can go to independentwrestling.tv, who I've been helping out lately with some research, and you can sign up and get a free five-day trial by using the promo code WrestleNomics. And if you do, I get a cut of that if you become a paid subscriber. So again, independentwrestling.tv, use the promo code WrestleNomics, a free five-day trial. Thanks as always to the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network for being my media distribution partner. And... I'm Brandon Thurston. Follow me at Brandon Thurston, and I'll talk to everybody next time. Hey.